Hi, this is Sarah. And this is Dan. And we'd like to welcome you to PDPAL. A monthly podcast about all things pediatric palliative care. Especially more than ever, we'd like to share with our listeners that the views in this podcast are ours alone and do not represent our respective organizations and definitely do not constitute medical advice. Definitely not medical advice or legal advice. Yeah, fair. I'll preface as we get into this episode a little bit by just sharing that Dan and I had a lot of fun doing this episode for multiple reasons, but primarily because this was a multi-generational podcast. So we had people who trained each other who then respectively trained Dan and I separately, and we had a lot of fun getting the crew back together. Dan, maybe you want to talk a little bit and set the expectations for our listeners of what we're going to be getting into. Yeah, I'd love to set everyone's expectations, set the scene, and talk about the set and setting for this podcast. And if you know anything about set and setting, then you know a little bit about what we're going to talk about here. Set and setting are two important concepts for psychedelic experiences. Your mindset going into the experience and the setting in which you're having the experience have a huge impact on what kind of an experience you have. So as you're about to listen to our interview, take a moment. Where's your mind at? Are you ready to listen to an interview about psychedelics and pediatric palliative care? And where are you? What is the setting like? Are you in a place where an interview about psychedelics in pediatric palliative care will be received well? I love it. And I also love that you got through all of that without a single pun. Um, well, to be honest, there isn't much room in this podcast for a lot of puns, so... I asked for that. Hi, I'm Dingle Spence. I'm an oncologist and palliative care physician based in Jamaica. Hi, I'm Chris Adrian. I'm a pediatric palliative care doctor in Los Angeles. Hi, I'm Alicia Waldman. I'm a pediatric palliative care physician. And as of the first week of September, I will be based at Great Ormond Street Hospital in London, UK. So we have the three of you before us. And Dan and I, when we were talking about where to start this episode, we're trying to figure out how far back to start the clock where that sort of spark of imagination, that spark of the idea first came to one of the three of you. Where does it start? Maybe it starts in a way when I was Alicia's fellow learning to be a palliative care provider, because at the same time that Alicia was training me as a palliative provider, community psychedelic guides were training me to be a, uh, a psychedelic guide. That was a, a not legal training. It was an underground that took place in, in New York City. I hoped one day to get to do it in a legal setting. And that conversation it evolved into the project that came together in Jamaica, bringing groups of bereaved parents down to a uh, estate house outside Montego Bay for about a week at a time. Jamaica came up because we knew it was one place where one could work not, not illegally. And the folks who were the other parts of the project in the community said, well, do we, what about Jamaica? Do we know anyone there? And I said, well, I kind of know. I wish I knew someone there. I have a, a dream of knowing someone there. There's someone I admire there who I've never, even though I've never met her, I think I could find a way to reach out. So actually, I asked Alicia for help. So, yes, I, I received a message from a, a colleague in Colombia who had been virtual support for our pediatric, not palliative care, because we don't really have that here, but for our pediatric oncology service. And I'd been on some of those calls. So she reached out to me and said, I want to link you up with somebody who wants to do research on um, bereaved parents in Jamaica. And I was like, hmm, well, I'm an adult oncologist, so I don't really have parents in that way. But I was like, sure. 
let's go ahead and have a chat. So Chris and I and a couple of other people got on a Zoom call now, a good three years ago, Chris, about three and a half years ago now. And we sat having a nice chat. And, you know, he was telling me about, you know, his bereaved parents who obviously were struggling. And then he said, this is where it all just turned on a dime. He said, I want to say two words to you. And if they resonate, then we'll move ahead. And if they don't, then we'll just say, bye, nice to meet you. And he said, magic mushrooms. And um, I was like, absolutely, let's talk some more. I hope I won't get you in trouble if I say that I actually, I did tell you I was doing this um, mm-hmm. while I was your fellow. I didn't, didn't tell everybody, but I did tell you, and you were my mentor in the work, and we stayed in conversation about it, at least as, a, I mean, I would check in every now, I think, to do a kind of sanity check, an am I crazy check. It's probably the place for me to jump in, because I think that's sort of the bifurcation in this story where, where my own journey, so to speak, began. And uh, yeah, I mean, Chris shared with me that he was studying this stuff on the side. And as I recall, I think I said something like, you know, as, as long as you don't start talking to our patients in the hospital about the Jaguar mother, we're, we're all okay. Um, and and. Like many people, I also then, right around that time, read Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind, which I I think is sort of a a common point for many people who are interested in this field. Through watching and talking to Chris, I developed a bit of an interest in what was happening in the underground world. Uh, Like Chris, I would say I I was very careful um, and very interested in how to bring this into our practice legally. But I gained a window into the underground world over the following couple of years. And then about two years ago now, I'm, I'm going to slightly lose track of time, but I uh, also took uh, an above ground course through the uh, Center for Integral Studies in California, CIIS. There's a number of above ground courses that are looking at how to train people to be psychedelic therapists. I mean, I should note that there's no uniform agreement at this point in time around what that means and what that should look like and who can be doing what. I think that conversation is reaching a frenzy pitch as ketamine clinics are becoming more common and MDMA is likely approaching rescheduling, hopefully next year, at the start of the year. So that's a, a pretty intense conversation now. So my current stance looking at the future is trying to figure out ways to be involved in ongoing research, because I do think, and this may be part of the point of this podcast, I think that the research is at a point where it needs to start moving into the pediatric realm, sort of the broader pediatric realm, that is. This is a fascinating story, and I am tempted to make all kinds of metaphors about how everything that's really interesting with the mushroom is what's happening underground. But my question goes back to what Chris said earlier in that fateful conversation with Dingle, where you said those two words, magic mushrooms. And my question is, why magic mushrooms? Alicia mentioned ketamine and MDMA, and there's obviously like a whole flourishing of different types of psychedelic research happening. But why psilocybin? Why magic mushrooms specifically for this work? For this project at that time, it was mushrooms actually explicitly because mushrooms were okay to work with in Jamaica. It's a practical thing at first. And then I think as we worked with them more and learned more together as guides and, and staff and supporters, the mushrooms seemed like the if we could choose again, I don't know that we would choose anything other than mushrooms, even if it were, if it were suddenly okay to work with, say, MDMA or, or ketamine in that way in Jamaica. 
you're absolutely right, Chris, that pretty much all other psychedelics are Schedule 1 here, just like most of the world. But for some reason, I actually think it was probably an oversight and not a considered decision. Psilocybin has never been scheduled. I think it's also important to say, though, that it's not part of our indigenous culture here. So while some of the mushrooms do grow, and you can if you know what you're doing, forage for them, we're a very herbal-based country to the point of problematic. People will be diagnosed with all sorts of things, and then I've literally seen it myself, go home, put their prescription on the top of the bathroom cabinet and go into the garden and pick bush, we call it bush, and boil bush, as opposed to taking conventional medicine. So it's much more likely that people would be much more comfortable with, say, cannabis. But funnily enough, cannabis is actually a little bit more scheduled, although it's been decriminalized and it's legal now for medical and sacramental use. It's not actually legal, 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 whereas psilocybin is legal. So that has made a big difference. And as you may know, we have hundreds of people coming to Jamaica on a weekly basis now to attend various retreats that have popped up. So most of those people are coming for, you know, personal growth, wellness, that kind of thing. So I think the Jamaica Grief Retreats were probably one of the few ones where we can, we have to be very careful with our language, but we are, I think, one of the very few groups that are actually targeting a specific problem of grief, of prolonged, complicated, whatever, however we want to phrase that. That's what makes us quite unique, really, in the space. And I agree with Chris that I think it's not just that psilocybin is legal here. There's something sacred, even though it's not necessarily sacred in Jamaica, but it, it has its history of sacred ceremonial use. And that's something we really see when the parents take the mushrooms. I think it's really important to touch on that this is not like a medicine that we're giving you to fix you. No, we want to get rid of that medical model that says, I know best, dear, here you are, take this medicine and you'll be fine. And I think one of the important things about that, the different approach is that we as practitioners need to do our own work. It's not the kind of thing where, okay, let me go take SSRIs to see what they're like, and then I can tell you it's all right. It's a very different approach. And so it's like we're all in it together. And so there wouldn't be a guide in the group, in a facilitator we're now calling ourselves, who has not had personal experience with mushrooms. And so we really feel that there's a way that we can connect with the parents on a whole different level than I think anything else that we as physicians really do in our daily life. There's so much that we don't know in the world of psychedelic therapies. And this is the research that's happening now. Among the different therapeutic medicines that are out there, I mean, I could sit here and reel off a whole list, there do appear to be some commonalities in in the experiences that they induce in terms of thinking differently, relating differently, having insights, but there are profound differences. And I think that's part of what Chris and Dingle are getting at around the mushrooms. There's a lot we still don't know about which agent might be best indicated for what issue. And Dingle sort of referred to wellness. I mean, there do appear to be differences. There's a difference between someone who's got treatment-resistant depression who can't even get out of bed in the morning, let alone engage in thoughtful intention setting and really deep work. Like That may be someone who benefits from a shorter course of one type of medicine, as opposed to someone who is dealing with complicated grief or someone who is dealing with 
well, more in the palliative care world, dealing with serious illness, you know, and not necessarily in the I'm immediately facing death sense, but in the sense of I'm dealing with potential mortality and I'm dealing with limitation of the things that I always thought made me me. And I would include as part of that being a provider in those worlds. And I, I agree with Dingle wholeheartedly. I think that part of this work is also for those of us who, who sit in the rooms with people who are suffering and that we ourselves need to do this work on how to relate to that, where to put it. And, and that there are applications for these medications also for us. This is at the heart of all the research that's going on now as well. And you sitting there picking your first cohort of bereaved parents to take on this journey with you. What were the things you were looking for? What were the questions you were asking? I imagine you were trying to weed out people who were looking for that quick fix, like you mentioned, Dingle. But I'm wondering how you picked the first cohort of families with this brand new experience. We hope that we can look at the parents' experience that we've accumulated so far and, and out of that start to get some idea about how might we actually approach this as research or how could our experience be helpful to other folks who are just now just really beginning to ask questions about how can psychedelics be helpful to people who are, who are struggling in their grief. When we were thinking about, oh, who might the first cohort be, there was selection around, well, is this psychologically safe for you? Is it medically safe for you? And we were very anxious about those questions and careful about them. And there were people who said it's not it's not that you're looking for a quick fix. It's like, like maybe it's too early. You're in the acute phase of your grief. And, and, if, and maybe it's not such a great idea to become more, to kind of enter into the ego destabilization that mushrooms might bring you right now. Or for parents who they knew they wanted help, but they couldn't really formulate a question or an intention or the thing that they actually wanted help with. As I recall it, I think in that first cohort, the question was, do you think you need the help? And do you have some sense yourself of what you need? Because most parents did. And the question they came to, the help they wanted, that they, they were asking of the mushrooms and, and that we thought the experience could give them. You have some insight about what you need, but there's something in the way. And you come to the journey experience and say, well, well help me move this out of the way and, and move in my grief. It's not necessarily about moving forward or feeling better. It's just about, you know, some of the parents, but most of them resonated with language around just getting unstuck and being able to get to someplace that's qualitatively different, uh, even though I'm not, I'm not going to be all better. One of our original um, our originators of the idea is um, a Canadian physician who lost his own son in a car accident. And it's very clear that psychiatry, psychotherapy, there was very little that helped him. He did find some help with holotropic breathwork, but it was really only when he got to psychedelics, psilocybin in particular, that he was able to move forward and to have a different relationship with his son. When you, I don't want to put words that are not mine, but he had a powerful transformation and remains a core member of our small group. One of the things also that was surprising to us, all of us being in palliative care, I think we fully expected that our participants would be people who had lost a child to disease. And we have yet to have, out of the 21 deceased children we have looked after, as it were, not one of them was sick. It was all sudden death. So suicide, drug overdose, car accident, completely different than I guess where I certainly felt I was coming from. Like losing a child is ridiculously hard, but at least if they're sick, you have a little bit of time to pre-grieve. And, you know, when the event happens, it will be catastrophic, but it's a different catastrophic 
I think there's a really fantastically important distinction that we're making in the sort of different types of parental grief. And I know it's something we talk about in pediatric palliative care as we're thinking about people's anticipatory grief and their bereavement process, right? It is very different when a child has a chronic illness and then does die versus when something comes out of the blue, even when that is not something that is extrinsic, like a car accident. So I wonder, because we think about those kinds of grief somewhat differently, and the process of healing from that kind of trauma is different, do you think there's a role for using psychedelics, specifically mushrooms, for parents who have gone through that other kind of grief experience of like a longer term, more time for anticipatory grief, more time to live with the idea of their child's mortality? Or is this really more of an intervention that's targeted at those who are dealing with the shock of sudden loss? I think so. And I say that in part because, you know, all we have so far from our Jamaica experience is stories. They're, they're powerful stories, but they're just stories. They're not data in any kind of strict sense. And there are as many or more stories out in the community of parents who, who we would recognize as the ones that we've worked with in peace palliative care. Parents who had multi-year journeys of illness and decline, and then on the other side of losing their child, really, they, they struggle just as much as the parents who lose their kids suddenly and traumatically. And so there are those stories out there. There's something very similar across the board. The only reason I can work there in any sustainable way for myself is that I've been with parents on the other side. I would never say to the parents on the on the near side of it, it's going to be okay. Um, you'll, you'll find joy in your life again. There will be a life on the other side of this, not just for most people, but really for, for everybody with the right help. I would never say that to them, but part of me holds that for them in that relational space. And I think for me, that's why I think, oh, this is for everybody, regardless of the level of trauma involved in the loss. And I think we can traumatize in the world of the pediatric hospital, we can traumatize people almost as, as, as well as the average murderer in the course of losing their child. I mean, it's not the same, but, but it is trauma. You know, Chris uses the word trauma, which I agree with completely. You know, MDMA is likely to be rescheduled on the basis of the phase three studies, which looked at MDMA for use specifically around PTSD with, you know, astonishing results. And I've, I've had the good fortune of watching some of those sessions. And it's the sort of stuff where if you weren't seeing it yourself, you'd say this is made up. How could someone have this sort of response? So I think there's an interesting question about are there flavors of experience, flavors of parental experience that might lend themselves more to one medication versus another or combinations, right? I mean, no one knows about, is there a role for a sequence of these things, which I think is commonly done in the underground. There there are underground uh, teachings that sort of follow this idea of starting with one substance and then moving on to another over a course of time. But the other thing I wanted to add in terms of the flavor of parental experience, in the course of my own training in research and therapy, I've come across a number of parents involved in this field who've lost their children to cancer. Uh, and I've asked them about, you know, so, sort of looking back, do you think that this would have helped during that process? I think at the time I was surprised, although I guess the answers make some sense to me now. Every parent who, who I've talked to who's undergone some sort of psychedelic therapy, who lost a child to cancer, has told me that they absolutely would not have wanted to do any of this therapy while they were engaged with their child's illness because there was something about battle stations. During the course of the illness, because the cancer journey tends to be active, 
And I mean, as, as one father put it to me, you know, it was all I could do to hold myself together from day to day and manage the family and manage myself. I wasn't in a place to become unmoored in that way, but that it was absolutely helpful afterwards. I'm going to throw this out there as just sort of an impressionistic response to what you're saying. And I'm seeing in my head that graph in Julie Howard's book about children with severe neurologic impairment, the illness trajectory, you know, the baseline and then the scary dip and then back to a lower baseline. And one of the things I remember, actually, when I was a resident and Alicia was teaching me was he talked about the time when palliative care was best invoked. And it was right after the dip right? Like not in the acute falling of acute illness as we're going down in flames, but like right after that, we're still in the PICU, but we're stable. Then we can start to say, hey, that was really frightening what just happened. Let's talk about palliative care. And it kind of sounds like psychedelics could be thought of in a similar way, that they maybe aren't for that moment of fall, that moment of shock, but maybe they're for after for as things are starting to recover, are starting to come back to a baseline. The way you're framing it actually invites a, maybe a different kind of comparison of like, what's psychedelic work doing anyway? And who needs psychedelics? And what are we using them for? There's this fulminating myth about them, about, oh, they're perfect, they're wonderful, they're panacea, everybody should take them. No matter what's wrong with you, psychedelics will make it better. And I think for a lot of our parents and families, not, not just in peds, but in all palliative care, they're already on a journey they're already going into this chaos space and the sacred space, the space that's generated anytime you come near your, your own death or you come near some kind of really significant loss. And when do we step in around that curve? Like you don't step in in the middle of the code and say, so let's, you know, what, what are your goals and values? But you do come in on the other end to try and what one word that we don't really necessarily use outside the psychedelic space in palliative care, but maybe it would be useful to borrow, is to think about that we're stepping in then to try and help them integrate the experience. And if in that moment of whatever the dip was, something became much clearer to the parent or patient about what's important to them, it's the job of palliative provider to keep that present with them as they come back to their regular life and not let it slip away and not let things just go back to how they were. And I think of that as the hardest and most important job of the guide is to, in a non-directive, but actually like very loving and, and somewhat forceful sometimes way to be present with somebody and say, what does this mean now? What part of the experience that you had is either mandating a change in your life or not? I think part of what Chris is getting at goes back to Dingle's earlier comment that this all deviates from our normal Western medical model that we have in mind. What this stuff is, is I don't think that this is going to turn out to be, oh, you're sad? Here, take four grams of this and call <laughs> the doctor. Or the Right? Like, that's not what it is. Like, this is not for everyone, as Chris says. Like, it is not a panacea. And for the people for whom you do use it, it's a tool. It's a catalyst, right? I mean, it's it's sort of a hyped up version of what we do in palliative care of sitting and reflecting. And Chris put it very beautifully just now, right? Like, what did all this mean to you? And what can you draw from this? But it's not that the medicine isn't ends onto itself. The goal is not to take four grams of this every day for the rest of your life in an open-ended way, not to belittle SSRIs, which have helped many people. But that's not what this is. And I think that speaks to also where it fits in. It can be very deeply destabilizing. In fact, that's part of how it works. And works would be in quotation marks if this were on video. 
right? There's something deeply destabilizing and transformative, but in an unmooring sort of way. And part of the process is figuring out how to remoor yourself in a way that makes sense and is helpful. But as a, a chaplain I worked with many years ago, he used to say, you know, in the middle of the crisis, you're out in the middle of a storm at sea with only one oar left. The last thing you want to do at that moment is take away the other oar. So this is not for the middle of that moment. But, you know, it's to create maybe a little mini storm at a different moment. We had a woman who had lost her child only four months before she came into the space. And I think in retrospect, we would probably have advised her differently. Now we're a little bit more mature and had two more cohorts since then. That's a bit soon. There's a period of, you know, the normal, natural grieving, acute grief. I don't think this fits for acute grief would be my personal opinion. I think you probably need to be at least a year out, got to that first anniversary. I mean, this is not a blanket suggestion, but just, you know, I think people are sometimes still too acute in a crisis, as Alicia said, to then take something that can destabilize you considerably and you may not be able to put the pieces back together. So I do think that's a caution. One of the other things I would say that is very powerful about this work is the building of community. You know, many of the parents, when they come, they'll they'll say, this is the first time we've been with people who really get what we're talking about, because maybe they don't know any other bereaved parents, or maybe they know people who've lost a mother or a sister or whatever, but they haven't lost a child and they haven't lost a child in that acute setting. Because remember, they don't have that whole hospital background support system. This just happened to them out of the clear blue sky. I think it's very important for our listeners to take home from this that this is deeply intentional work, the way that a lot of pediatric palliative care work is deeply intentional work, that you are not deeply destabilizing people who are in a state of currently being deeply destabilized by something else in their grief process or in their active loss process. And this is more than, you know, a one-time magic fix. And I know magic and mushrooms, these are words that we're using, but the magic here is not the mushrooms are a tool to sort of heighten the work that you are already doing, the work that many people already do in grief, which is this building of community and this working through grief in a very thoughtful and mindful way. Are there any other myths or any other misconceptions about your work that you run into on a regular basis that you feel maybe are similar to this idea that this is magic? The one thing that I most commonly run into is lay people confuse experiences they may have had recreationally in college or with friends for what this is. And, you know, I've had people say to me like, oh, I love ecstasy. When I was younger, I used to go out clubbing in Manhattan or mushrooms used to be my favorite to go and hang out in the woods with friends. I think one thing that it's important for people who are curious about this to know is that's not what we're talking about here. The mushrooms that you're using, it's not the one gram or so that you might use with friends to enhance uh, some music and, and being out in nature. You're talking about, you know, four to six grams, which is a much often more challenging experience. Michael Midhofer, who works at the MAPS Foundation and one of the leaders of the MDMA research, is often quoted as saying his one of his patients said to him after an MDMA trial, why did they call this ecstasy? It, it's, it's really hard work. Often people don't really realize that we have to tell them early on, you know, this is you're, you're lying down on a mattress. Your eyes are covered. It's an inward journey. It's not about how many beautiful hallucinations you can have at all. 
And I mean, I also work in many other spaces with psychedelics, so not just in the grief retreat. And, you know, we're very clear to people that this is work. This is probably not going to be fun. You have to be prepared to do internal work. You have to be prepared to, you know, at some level face your demons. But that is the work that will help you transform when you come out or relate differently to the pain that you've been carrying. I'm not saying that everybody will have a bad trip, as it were, but you may have a difficult time. But then that's why we're here as the facilitators and guides to be able to walk with you and help you unpack some of what might have come up in the journey space. I have a little bit of a pivot, and I'm going to start this pivot with a story. We've all sort of touched on how there's so many unknowns with therapies like this. And because this is a very oddly multi-generational podcast recording here, Chris, when I was your fellow, we were at AHPM in Orlando. And I remember we went to a talk on psychedelics. And I remember as soon as it was done, you had disappeared from the seat you were in, just almost like magic. And you were at that microphone right away, first one there. And you I remember this too. This was <laughs> a, a key memory for me as well. I think you may remember the words better than I do, but the gist of the question that you asked was, when will this be used for children? And the look on the faces of the presenters was shock and panic and horror, and no one knew how to answer that question. And so I'm going to turn that question and ask it back now that I am sitting before you as the experts in this. Do you see a role for children for pediatrics use targeted at pediatric patients themselves in the future, in the near future, what might that look like? Yes. <laughs> well, I, it, there's, there's three of us presented this at HPM, so there's broader applications that we can envision, but I can give you uh, an easy, straight and to the point answer, which is if, as expected, MDMA is rescheduled in, in early 2024, part of that rescheduling process is that there will be a requirement that that be studied in adolescence as well. And uh, I believe there's already work underway to start outlining what those trials are going to look like. I, I think the groundwork is being laid already for those trials. So I think it is not just some sort of distant fantasy. I think just from a regulatory and legislative perspective, there are going to be studies coming in the pipeline very soon. But then in the broader sense, and the three of us spoke about, we've already talked today about the amazing work these two are doing with bereaved parents. I mentioned earlier a role perhaps for clinicians who are exposed to extreme levels of suffering for long periods of time. I think, you know, the obvious question at the center of all this is, yeah, there's probably a role for children, certainly adolescents. And I would, my personal guess is as young as 13, 14, maybe 12 depending on where they are developmentally. But if you can have an adult facing life-limiting illness who has an utterly transformative experience with a single dose of psilocybin surrounded by some form of psychotherapy, I think it's not a, a stretch to imagine that the same could be true of, again, a developmentally prepared adolescent. The other thing that we had thought about mentioning at HPM but didn't end up talking about it because none of us felt we had much to say in detail about it or even necessarily if it was for us to speak about in that setting is indigenous practice. And there are folks who have been using these medicines for thousands of years. It's like mushrooms are literally for babies, for children who can't talk yet. And while none of us are, are advocating, I don't think, bringing mushrooms into the baby-baby space, I think that's something else to think about along with our impulse to protect the very 
vulnerable populations that we work with. I think we could hold that and then also hold a space for just for humility around how much other practitioners who are in other cultures know about this work that we just don't know. I think that's a really good point is I'm certainly not an expert on indigenous practice, but I think we had the same teacher, Chris, and my understanding is that families would do it together and that it didn't sound like there was an age limit and that it's just part of the culture and we're all going to be in ceremony and it's for healing of the family and it's a norm, you know, in cultures where psilocybin has been around for a very long time. You know, really, from the pediatric point of view, what would be useful is to actually dive into that. And, you know, is there literature around the use of psychedelics in under 12s as part of a cultural practice? I'd be very interested in knowing a bit more about that. There are studies that I'm not sure if uh, just how young the kids are, but that looked at church use of ayahuasca, I think, in in South America and looked at church populations and followed the adolescent kids. Uh, And as I recall, as those studies were able to ascertain, they did not find that there were deleterious consequences, at least according to the outcomes they were measuring for for the adolescents who were using ayahuasca as part of their ongoing church practice. I think one of the things that you said several times is research, and I just want to be clear that that isn't what we're doing. We have spoken about, you know, how do we try and capture something that resembles data? And so we've talked about doing pre-retreat standard grief questionnaires and then, you know, re-administering that afterwards. You know, what's it like at three months, at six months, one year? How are you at two years out? I think there's a set of folks who would be like, absolutely do not come near my bereaved parent with questionnaires, you know, at this point in time. But we do feel quite strongly, I think, certainly a few of us in the group, that it is ultimately going to be important to measure something. I mean, the narrative is fantastic. And so far, that's what we have, but we don't really have anything more solid than that to be able to present to the world. I would add a similar, maybe broader call, thinking about our pediatric palliative care colleagues in the listenership of this podcast. I think I would call on our colleagues to engage in research, but it's not just that, to engage in the topic, engage in the fact that this is happening. This is real. This is coming. I mean, it's real. And in 25 years, I've seen a lot of advances in medicine. I think I said something like this at the HPM talk as well. I've seen a lot of advances in medicine. One of the things that I think I haven't really seen advances in is suffering. I just don't think, in many respects, we're doing worse, right? All the advances in the other areas, aspects of healthcare, sometimes feel like they're adding to misery. And we have an amazing opportunity here to engage with, uh, again, I don't want to sound sort of too uh, blissed out, but a real revolution in how we think about management of suffering. And at the same time, we have a real opportunity to drop the ball here as a community in a couple respects. We can, as a pediatric community, not engage with this and have this runoff with the adult world and in 15 years suddenly realize, oh, this is amazing and they're getting all this amazing work done and we haven't tapped into it, which would be a shame. 
I think there's also an opportunity for someone to start applying this stuff in a haphazard and reckless way and to ruin it for everyone. I have to say, I, and I may be in the minority, I'm not sure, I, I have very mixed feelings about the legalization of mushroom sales in Oregon and in Colorado. I worry a lot about regulation or lack thereof and bad outcomes that could sort of poison the well here. So this is a call. There's an amazing opportunity. And whether you're actively involved in research or just paying attention and talking to your patients about it, I think it's critical. Your patients are going to start talking to you about this. I've gotten calls. I know I'm not alone in that. It's out there. That is, depending on your perspective, extremely promising, extremely ominous, somewhere in between. And for all our audience, the place to start is you listened to this episode and you're thinking about it. So keep thinking about it. So one of the things that struck me as the most surprising as we were talking, and I anticipated being surprised by a number of things in this conversation, was the idea that unlike other medications, this is something that is taken with your guide, with your team. And while that makes sense now in retrospect, it's something that I did not expect going into this to be such an integral part of this therapy. Because, you know, yeah. in other forms of therapy, you're not, when you go to see your grief therapist, you're not listening to them unbox their grief while you unbox your grief. It's not a joint experience. Here, it seems like a joint experience. Yeah. And I think even to take that further, therapy is acknowledged to be something of a give and take, right? It's an interpersonal interaction. But this is, in some sense, a pharmaceutical, right? Like this is a chemical compound. And our pharmacologic interventions are completely one-sided. I was adjusting one of my patient's PCAs today. It has nothing to do with what my experience is. It's all about typing new numbers into the computer and then his experience of what it feels like to be getting morphine. But this is very different, like you're saying. And I think the other important thing to share, like unlike a PCA, unlike a traditional medication, this is not a longitudinal experience. This is a singular experience and then the community that builds around it. And I think community is key to all sorts of grief. And this group that they've picked, the sudden death group, that was another surprising thing about this. I expected more of a classic pediatric palliative care population, but we have this group with experienced sudden loss of their children. That is a group that my guess is has a harder time finding community. And so that idea of building community for this group, in addition to this experience and making that the longitudinal part seems more powerful here than average. Yeah. The drug itself, the experience of it is this singular event that is part of a continuity in time and is part of a continuity of people who are experiencing it, which is unique. Or at least we could say the same thing about any pediatric palliative care, or I will say even medical intervention. Everything that we do exists on a continuity of time and experience. But in these interventions, it's more clear or more present or more an acknowledged part of the intervention itself. I feel myself struggling for words to describe this, and I think that's telling, not just about how tired I am, but like how <laughs> I, I actually think it's telling about the nature of this intervention, and I even hesitate to use the word intervention. This is something different. Our guests use the words revolutionary and revolution, and I'm thinking about that in terms of like Thomas Kuhn and the structure of scientific revolutions and how this operates in a kind of different scientific paradigm than the one we're used to operating in. And I think I'm feeling that. But at the same time, there's this strange optimism in what I hear you saying, 
where I want to bring in what, especially what Dingle really honed in on, which is this is not a magic fix. And this is not a panacea. This is not this person is sad, let's throw this mushroom at them and fix it. And I think I went into this recording expecting to be surprised more so than average. I think we did this podcast, both of us want to be continuous learners, not because we know anything and we expect to be surprised, but more than average, I was surprised. And I think because of that mixed messaging, where sometimes you hear it as this magic, phenomenal, revolutionary, as the word you just used, treatment. And at the other side, I hear that we have so much ability to do this wrong and to really mess this up for people, which I think was a really important message too. Is this something you have to be really mindful and careful when both recommending using and eventually, hopefully researching? I think that can't be emphasized enough. This is a very exciting and very perilous time for this field of inquiry. It could go so wrong so quickly. I'm glad that we have thoughtful intelligent people like our guests working on this. I don't want to imply that they are in any way putting this in danger. Like they seem to be doing a wonderful job of this. And I think everyone I've met in the palliative care community who is interested in psychedelics is engaging with that concern and engaging with those issues of where is this going to sit? How is this going to sit in palliative care and in society more generally, because I think everyone does feel both the excitement and the danger. Well, then um, maybe I'll end this episode on an optimistic note, which is as our listeners are trudging forward into this new world cautiously, as they've been advised to, I would invite anyone who's open to doing this research, which is the call at the end of the episode, to come back on the air in two years. We'd like to hear how you're doing and what you've been finding. Thanks for listening. Our theme song is provided by Kevin McLeod. You can follow us on Twitter, where our username is at PDPal. You can find the notes for this podcast and all of our episodes on pdpal.org. If you'd like to submit thoughts, objections, or ideas for future episodes, please reach out via the email on our website. This has been PDPal. We'll see you next month. Destabilization. I like it. It's a little vague. I don't know. Vague might be good. Why psilocybin? getting making me crazy Jamaican crazy <laughs> Jamaican me rethink my outlook on my, <laughs> my chronic grief that's it brilliant <laughs> that's our title